0: Heavenly Father, we praise You for sending Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to walk a road we could not and would not walk. We thank You for sending Him to Jerusalem and to the cross that we might be redeemed by His blood, empowered by the Spirit, and then set on a road for Your glory. I ask, Lord, that You would bless us during this time that You would cause us to see clearly the ministry that You have called and equipped us to do, that You would give us the eyes of Your Son that we might see the lost in this mission field in our lives and certainly here in the Cambrian Park community, and that we might faithfully, by the power of Your Spirit, with the Word of God in hand, bring the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Father, we know that we live in a time of much confusion, politically, socially, economically, and spiritually. This is not a surprise to us. I ask, Father, that we would be part of the great solution for mankind. That we would cause those in our midst to contemplate deeply their standing before you without Christ that we would bring to their attention the basic truths of this faith, that we would show them a crucified, risen Savior, and then You would, by Your Spirit, do a great work by saving many here. Father, I ask that You would equip each of us this morning to be faithful messengers of the gospel, that we would walk the road that You placed upon, that we would not turn to the left or to the right, but be faithful messengers. You've set us on that road. You've equipped us to walk it. You've encouraged us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and the brothers and sisters we have here. So I pray, Lord, that we would walk it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hmm. Good morning. Thank you you're here. <clears throat> Acts 28. If you're sad, I'm sad too. We're so close, aren't we? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're saying, let's get out of this book. we got to get somewhere else. That's okay, too. I understand that. Um, As a child, my family would often road trip. We uh, we had family up in Tacoma, Washington, and we would take the 13, 14-hour. Usually, we would drive all the way through the night or through the day from San Jose. Um, As a child, I would ask that ever-foolish question to my father as we were still driving, are we there yet? And my father would always say, does it look like we're there yet? Of course, the answer was no. It was a long and at times a difficult journey, especially during the winter months. It would take much longer than 14 or 15 hours. But my parents wanted us to continue in our relationship with our extended family. Even though we were separated by 800 miles, they wanted us to be around my aunts and uncles and cousins two, three times a year. So we would make the journey often. This morning, as we begin to close The story in the book of Acts. We're going to join Paul and Luke and Aristarchus again as they make the very last leg of their journey and as they get to Rome. And it was a journey they were willing to make because it was the right thing to do, too. Not only because God had called Paul specifically to go to Rome, he had been appointed to that end, but because Rome very much needed the apostolic message of the Apostle Paul. Those in Rome who were unsaved needed the apostolic message of the Apostle Paul. So this morning, I would like for us collectively to contemplate the road that we are on as a church and the road that God has placed you on as a faithful messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would like for us to be rightly encouraged this morning. If you've walked with Christ any time, you know that road is hard. The road of sanctification is a hard road. The road of proclamation is a hard road. And yet God has placed you on it and he's equipped you in the spirit and in the church to be encouraged as you walk it. So I don't want us to be discouraged today. I don't want you to leave feeling burdened that now you have this chore to do, this Christian chore to do. I want you to be encouraged with great clarity on the work to be done and then the power that we have in the spirit in the church to do that very work. So you have your own road to Rome. It's not like Paul's, it's yours. And so by God's grace, he'll bring great clarity for us that we might bring clarity to the mission field in which we live. So from this text this morning, I would like for us to see collectively, number one, your road to Rome. Your road to Rome. And number two, your role once you get there. Your role in Rome. Your road to Rome and your role in Rome. The theme of the sermon is this. Every Christian Without exception, every Christian is called to go and make the gospel clear. Every single believer saved by grace in Jesus Christ is called to go and make the gospel clear. So that includes you if you profess Christ. Point number one, your road to Rome. Look at verse 11. So after three months, Luke's writing, after three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, and the twin gods as a figurehead. So Paul, his centurion, now we know his name well, Julius, Luke, Aristarchus, and the other castaways, they spent three months on the island of Malta, and they were waiting for the winter to pass and the weather to improve so they could jump on one of those sailing trade routes up to Italy. So we're likely sometime here, mid-February, early March, and so Julius goes out and he procures an Alexandrian ship, most likely a grain ship again. Um, and they head for the port of Petoli, which was on, or which is on the western side of mainland Italy. Now the ship, Luke tells us, has twin gods. Those twin gods are Castor and Pollux, and those are the two sons, or two sons of Zeus, and they were considered in in ancient mythology, to be the patron gods of sailors. So they were out at sea with the sailors, protecting the sailors, providing favorable winds, making sure that they did not perish at sea. Luke writes this, I have no doubt, just as an observation, as an historical observation. But I can only imagine how those who had been with Paul in the midst of that storm for 14 days, suffered the shipwreck and then made themselves safely to Malta. I can only imagine how they boarded that ship looking at those two figureheads. Usually it was, it was carved into the bow of the ship or painted on, how they looked at Castor and Pollux very, very differently. Those who had been on the, board, on the ship with Paul, they knew unequivocally that it was Paul's God who promised to deliver all 276 souls safely onto the island of Malta. They knew it wasn't Castor, and they knew it wasn't Pollux even though they had prayed to them. And so a very different entrance onto this ship heading for Italy. Look at verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Syracuse was the capital of the island of Sicily, and was on the southeast side of the island, about 90 miles due north of the island of Malta. So they hadn't gone that far. It had two excellent harbors, so they put in there, and, Paul, and Luke tells us they stayed there for three days, likely because the, the winds were not favorable, and they know how that goes and after that storm that they went through, not to, not to venture out when the winds are not favorable. Verse 13, and from there we made a, a circuit and arrived at Regium. Now Regium it was a port on the southern tip of the boot of Italy. And so it was right at the entrance of the Straits of Messian. And Messian still is a very narrow and treacherous trip that you have to get through in order to go up the west side of uh, the coast of Italy. And Luke tells us that getting from Syracuse to Regium, they did a circuit. And that they, he probably meant they were doing what's called tacking. And I'm, I'm not into sailing, so I had to do a little bit of reading about this, but tacking is something you do if you're trying to go a particular direction and the wind is against you to get, your, to get forward progress. And so it took them some time to go this very short distance of 70 miles up to um, Regium. latter part of verse 13, And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petoli. So they're, they're at Regium, they're waiting, and then a south wind comes up. They needed a south wind, so they make it through the Straits of Messian without incident, they make it up the western coast of Italy about midway and they put in at Patoli. So once they get to Patoli, Luke tells us in verse 14, we found brothers, that would be Christians. We found Christians and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So for seven days, Julius allows Luke and, and Paul and Aristarchus to spend time with their Christian brothers in Petoli before making the 130-mile journey on foot up to the city of Rome. And then Luke says this, and it's, it's anticlimactic in the way it's written. It's a little better in the Greek, but the emphasis we want, he says, and thus, and so, the, the uh, ESV says, and so we came to Rome. So finally, after much hardship and trial, Paul reaches his commissioned goal. He had been called by God to go to Rome. The capital city, we would say the capital city at that time of the world, certainly of the Western world, the cultural, political, and economic hub of the Western world, the city of Rome, the city that Titus Livius called Listen, This he was a contemporary, a little bit before Paul, first century Roman historian, called it the fortunate, the invincible, the eternal city, Rome. So now years prior on on his third missionary journey, if you remember from Acts chapter 19, Paul knew the Holy Spirit had communicated to him that he was going to go to Rome as a messenger of Jesus Christ. Acts 19 verse 21, We're told this, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, after I've been to Jerusalem, he said, I must also see Rome. He wasn't saying it like a sightseer. I have to go visit Rome. He meant, I must go to Rome as a messenger of Jesus Christ. And then if you remember after being rescued from the riotous crowd in Jerusalem, Jesus actually appeared, appeared to him. Remember, he was in the Roman barracks and Jesus came to him and he appeared to him in a vision. And this is what Jesus said to him, Acts 23, 11. Jesus said to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And now we know from that point of Jesus appearing in the Roman barracks to the time of getting to Rome, we know why he said take courage. What a, what a difficult journey for him to get to the capital city. More than two years and and lots of hardship. Um, I think what I want us to see in this is the, the great promise and the great movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's always been part of God's redemptive plan. It's always been there. Paul's been a part of that over these last several chapters. Right before Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter one, it's probably, some say it's the actual theme of the entire book of Acts. He said this, Jesus said to the disciples, Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end, singular, not plural, end of the earth. Now, some believe that when Jesus said that, when he said the end of the earth, that he was referring to this moment, In Acts chapter 28, when Paul reaches Rome, which would be the center of the Western world. Um, I I don't know that I I hold to that interpretation, um, but what we do know for certain is that God's plan of redemption for every tribe, tongue, and nation has been and continues to be ongoing. He made that promise in the Old Testament and continues to fulfill it today. And Paul's role in that plan, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Asia and Europe, and now in the capital city, reveals God's plan in action. God made a promise. God is fulfilling that promise. And from Rome, the gospel literally did go and has gone to the ends, we can say plural, the ends of the earth. For 2,000 years, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, has moved to the ends of the earth. And it continues to move and is on the move this hour. It went from Jerusalem to Rome, from Rome to Europe, North Africa, Asia Minor. It went to Russia, to China, to South America, to North America, praise God. Oh, you better be thankful for that if you're from North America. It went to um, Australia and India and, and literally the four corners have been touched in some capacity by the gospel of grace. And it continues to this very hour. The greatest religious movement in human history is Christianity. And the very source of that is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So for 2,000 years, the true church of Jesus Christ has been on what? Has been on mission. Has been on mission. Now, we're Southern Baptists, so we talk about mission a lot because we, we think the mission of the gospel is really important. That's why we go out as missionaries, we send missionaries, we support missionaries, and we pray for missionaries. The road to go on with the gospel is always difficult, always journeying. We are striving on these difficult roads to bring the gospel to the lost near and far. And as Christians on mission here in San Jose, which you are if you are a believer, traveling those same difficult roads can be difficult. And two things I want us to draw from this passage on that is an expectation that if you're going to walk the narrow road of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a missionary here in San Jose, then you need to expect difficulty and encouragement. You should expect both, that we shouldn't be surprised that we are experiencing difficulty in preaching Christ and be encouraged in the proclamation of Christ. In fact, Jesus, after his disciples, he was teaching them on his imminent death and resurrection in Matthew 16, listen to what he said to them. He said in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, you've heard that dozens of times, but that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul denied himself his old life of the up-and-coming Pharisee of his time. He took up his cross, which was to what? To be a missionary to the Gentiles. To go to places like Asia and Europe and eventually Rome. And he followed our Lord all the way to the pagan capital city itself. And Paul suffered heartache all along the way. I mean, just, we know about Paul's suffering up to the, the, the calling in Acts chapter 19, but from the time that he got to Jerusalem to the time he set foot in Rome, he went through extreme suffering, extreme difficulty. We know initially the, when he was in Ephesus and he got the call from the Holy Spirit, they tried to prevent him from going. He said, you're breaking my heart. Why are you doing this to me? God's calling me. Stop breaking my heart. We know that he had a near-death experience at the hands of the angry mob in Jerusalem. And then he was illegally arrested, and then he was nearly flogged. And suffering under both the Jewish and Roman legal systems, he had been charged of crimes he did not commit. He escaped a foiled assassination attempt. He saw himself before two Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and then before King Agrippa. He spent two years under house arrest in Caesarea for committing no crime, no accusation, and no trial. And then weeks at sea, 14 14 days in a northeastern storm, a shipwreck, a poisonous snake bite, (coughs) only to what? only to be delivered by God to Rome in chains. Look at verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded them. So Paul, when they get to Rome, Paul wasn't put in the barracks with the rest of the prisoners. He was allowed and and was kept for those next two years to, to enjoy, if you can call this enjoyment. He was under house arrest. And and there's debate on this, but I think the commentators who say he was chained to a guard during that entire time, I think are more accurate. So he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. My beloved, the road for Paul to get to Rome, from Jerusalem to Rome, was a very, very difficult road. So difficult, I dare say, that any one of these hardships for many Western Christians today would shipwreck their faith. Any one, let alone putting them all together. Now, we want to be careful in our application. We don't want to say that our suffering will be exactly the same as Paul's suffering. Jesus said in Acts chapter 9 that Paul would have to suffer for the sake of his name. This was Paul's journey, not every Christian's journey. And yet, Jesus made it very clear that every Christian is what? Called to take up his or her cross and follow him. Now, my beloved, a cross is something that you bear that you don't necessarily desire A cross is something that requires pain and suffering. In other words, your road to Rome, even though not the same as Paul, the cross that you've been called to bear, the specific ministry that God has called and given you to fulfill will not be the same as Paul's, but it will be hard. That's guaranteed if you're going to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in this sinful world. And if you're going to strive to be a faithful witness here in the Bay Area... It's going to be a difficult road. That is guaranteed. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is what? It's easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. There are many in the church who profess Christ who are still on that broad path. They say yes to Jesus and no to the narrow road. Why? Because it's hard. It's always been hard. For 2,000 years it's been hard. Jesus said, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, families who have chosen, for example, to homeschool their children because of what the public schools in the state of California are now teaching, this is a hard road to travel. Ask any homeschool parent how hard it is to homeschool children in the midst of this cultural moment. But what a gospel testimony! to your children, to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, when you say we will not subject our children to the evil progressive policies of the left, but we will train them up in the faith as God has so commanded us. Incredible. For those of you working in woke companies, daily going into environments that are hostile to your faith, and yet you refuse to capitulate or compromise your faith or your testimony in Jesus Christ. That's a hard road to travel. But what a powerful gospel testimony you are to your colleagues and your employers and your brothers and sisters in Christ when you continue down that road in faith. Engaging in your ministry, doing the work that God has called you to do instead of satisfying your own self-centered desires is a hard road. Working to save your marriage rather than vacating it at times is a hard road. Sharing the gospel with family and friends is a hard road. Striving to make disciples who will what? Who will also pick up their cross and follow Jesus. These are all hard roads, and we should expect, we should be wise. If we're going to follow Christ, it will be difficult. And yet, in the midst of the difficulty, whatever your Roman road looks like, you can also expect to be greatly encouraged. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, and the brothers there, they're... Speaking of Rome, the brothers, the Christians who are in Rome, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So Luke adds this wonderfully encouraging footnote to the narrative. As Paul and the others are making the 130-mile trek from Patoli to Rome, several Christians in Rome simply could not wait they were so eager to see Paul, they set out in two groups. One makes it to the Forum of Appius, the, the Appian Way, or the Appian Way, is about 40 miles south of Rome, so they travel 40 miles to see Paul before Paul is going to be there. And then another group set out, and they made it to a place, a town called the Three Taverns. You can only imagine what that town must have been like, a small town about 30 miles south of Rome. Now you cannot read this. I don't believe you can read this, and I don't think that Luke put it here by chance. You can't read these brothers and sisters going out to meet Paul and escort him into Rome and not think of our Lord's glorious entrance, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, can you not? As they went out and they ushered Jesus in. The parallels, I believe, are intentional. You have two gospel messengers, Jesus Christ bringing the gospel to the capital of the Jews in Jerusalem and the apostle Paul, a messenger of Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel message to the capital of the Gentiles being Rome. Fantastic bookends. The gospel of grace for Jew and Gentile alike. Now these brothers and sisters, no doubt, they were, they were going out because they, they likely loved Paul and they were very likely eager to, to meet this great missionary to the Gentiles, the author of the book of Romans, the theological masterpiece they had received in letter form three years prior. But what they didn't expect, I don't imagine what they expected, is how much Paul would be encouraged by them. Look at the latter part of verse 15. On seeing them, on um, Paul seeing all those who came from Rome to escort Paul to the city, Paul thanked God and he took courage. He thanked God and he took courage. So Paul had, he, wasn't, he didn't know how he was going to be received. You know there was, there was probably a bit of trepidation. How will the Christian church in Rome receive me? And he didn't know the fortitude or strength of the Christians in Rome? Was he going to go into a ministry that was already stable and able to um, continue the proclamation of the gospel and see sinners saved? So he thanks God and he finds great encouragement in his brothers and sisters coming to him and escorting him into the city. My beloved, the Roman road God has placed you on when you came to him, when you picked up your cross, and when you started following Jesus, it was not meant to be easy, But listen, it was not meant to be easy, but it wasn't meant to be traveled alone either. So the road that you're on, the ministry you've been called to, the road of sanctification, it's not meant to be easy, but it's also meant not to be traveled all by yourself. I believe in the context of the Western church that one of the reasons our paths of ministry seem so difficult for us to actually walk and so little fruit born from them is because most Western Christians are still striving to do the ministry all by themselves. You, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible setting out on your own, leaning on your own strength and your own fortitude to what? To get you to the capital city, even though you know it's such a hard road. You know it is, and yet we continue to think in our own pride we have the strength to do it all by ourselves. So prominent, my beloved, is this thinking now In the Western Church, I can even go back six years. In 2016, listen to this: 2016, two thirds of professing Christians in the United States believe that quote worshiping alone or with family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Two thirds of professing Christians in this country six years ago said, "I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need. I don't need to be part of that. I can go it alone." So prominent has this thinking become that we should not be surprised that our post-COVID church attendance, depending upon the poll you look at, is anywhere from 30 to 60% of what it was three years ago. People aren't going back to church. We'll say, well, why wouldn't they? Don't they want to go? Maybe in part, but they also think they don't have to. They don't need one another. That is a lie. Scriptures teach that clearly. So rather than thanking God and being encouraged by the community of saints that we've been blessed with, as Paul was blessed with. Most Westerners today, they remain isolated in their faith. My brothers, you can look around this morning and you can identify the God-given brothers and sisters in Christ in your life that he gave to you to walk your road with you. He didn't set you on a task and, and say, it's going to be really difficult, now do it all by yourself. He gave you the Holy Spirit, he gave you his word, and he gave you the church to walk your road together, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. The church is given that we might not only ensure that we persevere to the end because we want to make it all the way into the eternal kingdom, but brothers and sisters are given to us so that they can help us use our gifts and talents to fulfill the ministry that God has given you to do. And yes, I'm talking specifically to you. You say, well, I'm not gifted, I'm not talented. Of course you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, listen closely. There are a variety of gifts for the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Listen, To to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you know Christ, then you have been gifted and equipped by God to do ministry work. You have. In fact, we know, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, after the great evangelical mantra, verses 8 and 9, he says in verse 10, For we, speaking of every Christian, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? We should actually walk in them. We should do them. You have a road. You have a work. Oh, that's good news, my beloved. God has given us one another so that we can be the spouse and the parents and the employees and the friends and the servant that God had called us to be. He's given us one another to that end. Now Christ traveled the road to Jerusalem and specifically the road to the cross by himself. He picked up that cross and he embraced the condemnation that we rightly deserved. He did that for you. And he did it not only to save you, to to grant forgiveness of your sins and then his holiness in, in your place, um, but he did it so that he could create a body of believers just like us who can help each other walk the road together. So he bore it alone so that we could do it together. So you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to walk your Roman road alone. My beloved, you, you only make your journey and your specific calling in Christ more difficult, if not impossible, when you try to do it by yourself. This is a foreign language to the Western church. We think we're supposed to do it by ourselves with very little, if any, help from one another. The Bible doesn't even have that thought process that we are given to one another by God to walk the road together in each other's lives daily. What an encouragement these two separate welcome parties were to the Apostle Paul knowing that he would not have to proclaim the gospel in Rome alone but he was going to be surrounded by like-minded brothers and sisters obviously very energetic they were willing to travel 30 and 40 miles to meet him so they had energy and they were fortified they would pray for him they would work with him they'd be active in the ministry in Rome what an encouragement it must have been I, I, I pray that we can be like that too here at Christ Community Church that we won't just talk about it. You won't just hear it preached or in a Bible study or in a community group, but we will actually engage in one another's lives. We'll actually fulfill the command in Hebrews to spur one another on to what? To love and good deeds. We'll actually do what the Bible calls us to do, praying for each other, serving each other so that we can faithfully do the work God has called us to. My beloved, you need your brothers and sisters' help. You do, and they need yours. There's no such thing as the individual alone Christian. So first we see, I pray that everyone's road to Rome is difficult, but it should be encouraging. If it's difficult and not encouraging, then maybe you're not part of the community that's helping you walk that road. One of the reasons, though, I believe this road is so difficult today, and certainly in this particular area, is the confusion that surrounds our faith, both inside and outside the church. It's hard in part because there's so much confusion wrapped around what Christianity is and what it is not. Point number two, your role in Rome. So Paul wastes no time, I love it, this man is a man of industry, he wastes no time getting to work. Look at verse 17. After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So he only wastes three days, no respite, he gets right back to work and he calls the Jews together for two reasons. One, that we know that, now you should, we've been 28 28 chapters now, the Apostle Paul, when he would go to a city where there were Jews, he would call. To, he would go to the Jews first. He'd go to the synagogues. You say, well, why would he do that? Because the gospel comes through Israel, right? So the promise that was made to David. So he goes and he proclaims the truth of a Jewish Messiah, the son of David, has come to the Jews. But there's a second reason, and he, he plays that out here. He wants to address all the rumors and all the lies and even some of the false accusations that were made against him. Look at the latter part of verse 17. And when they had gathered, he's speaking of the Jews, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he has no idea what they've heard right over the past two years, uh, but he wants to declare his innocence before them. He wants them to know that the charges are false and any rumors they've heard about him were likely false also. Now, if you remember, Paul had been charged of teaching against Israel, teaching against the laws of Moses, teaching against the temple. At one point, he was actually accused of stirring up trouble in the context of uh, Jerusalem and then someone said throughout the empire, and even desecrating the temple. These were all false accusations, all untrue. So Paul continues in verse 18. He said, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Not only not the death penalty, there was no reason for him to be charged of any wrongdoing. Paul says, they tried, they examined me multiple times, and I was found to be innocent of all charges. But then he says something very interesting in verse 19. He said, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Rome. Because the Jews were not satisfied in the the Roman rendering of his case, he appealed to Caesar. and Then he says, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. In other words, we, we know that Paul appealed to Caesar because he wanted a fair trial. We also know he appealed to Caesar because God had decreed him to get to Rome and if you want to talk to Caesar, you got to go to Rome. But then he makes it very clear, he's trying to build unity with the Jews that were in Rome and he says, listen, I had, I had no intention to bring counter charges. They brought false charges against me But I have no charge to bring against them. It's such a a Christian display of forgiveness. He certainly had good cause to, but he did not. Instead, he says, All I wanted them to what? Was to believe in Christ. I just wanted them to know about Christ. Look at verse 20. He says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because, listen to this, of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So Paul called. The Jews to meet with him, not to vindicate himself or to seek their approval or even their pity. Paul called them together to speak to the hope of Israel. Now, we've looked at this already. That is the Jewish hope of the Messiah, of God sending the Savior, his son Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, to come and restore the glory of God's people of Israel. And so Paul says, I'm wearing these chains because of my faith in the Christ, in the Messiah. I'm wearing these chains for my faith in the one who, past tense, has fulfilled it. The promise to David, it is Christ. And just as he appealed, if you remember, to the Pharisees back in Jerusalem, he now appeals to their collective belief in the Davidic covenant. He's going to go to the covenant made with David. The promise that God made to David that what? From his bloodline, a new king would reign over a new kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7, listen. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. He's speaking of Christ, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So Paul stands before them and says, listen, this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The king has come. I'm in chains because I believe it has been fulfilled, and I believe it's been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to proclaim the gospel to them. Look at verse 21. And the Jews, they, the Jews, said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So Paul, poor Paul, makes this incredible case that we have no idea what you're talking about. They hadn't heard anything. They hadn't heard anything in the the past two years from Jerusalem to Caesarea, all the the movement of Paul in and out of the, the Roman courtrooms and they heard nothing about the accusations, nothing about the trials. They said, we haven't heard any evil about you at all. So they're completely ignorant to the charges. But then they say in verse 22, look, but, they continue, but we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect speaking of Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken it is spoken against. Now Paul is a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine getting a question like that. I Imagine you getting a question like that. At work, around the dinner table. Hey, tell me, what you, tell me about this Christianity thing. You know, we've heard lots of things that are not so good about it. Just tell me your thoughts. I mean, it's a softball, right? It's not even a softball. It's a watermelon. And Paul, I imagine Paul just started salivating at this thought. I cannot believe you asked me that because that was his intention all along, was to talk to them about Christ. They want to know his views. It's so fantastic. Now, to be clear, they, they, they likely had a general knowledge of who Paul was. He was pretty famous at that point in time. They also had a, a general knowledge of Christianity. There was a, the church in Rome. Paul wrote the letter three years prior in 57 AD, so, and, and he talks about the church in Rome being a faithful church known throughout the, the Christian kingdom. So they, they knew about it. They certainly had access to it. But it's interesting here. They, they want to hear from an apostle. right? They want to know what Paul, who was renowned in the faith, has to say about this faith. They certainly could have got it and probably heard it from members of the Roman church, but they want to, they want to hear it from an authority. We want to know your views about this religious sect. And then they said, you know, we've, we've heard all kinds of things, and it's been spoken mostly Against, mostly against, Um, and see, think. Well, what what were those things that were so bad in the first century? You know, we're we're talking, you know, thirty years post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What what were some of these things that were so bad that the Jews were hearing? Well, doctrinally, the Jews were hearing some true things that they either completely rejected or they twisted. The Jews would have heard and objected to the Christian claim that God had become a man. I mean, that that's not going to fit in the the Jewish doctrine of faith. Not only a man, but he was a man born of a virgin, grew up, suffered, died, and was buried. They would have objected to that. They would have objected to any idea of a single, in time, in history, resurrection of a dead man. They would have objected to that, and they certainly would have objected to salvation by grace through faith in this dead, now supposed risen man. Not the strict adherence to the laws of Moses, or the temple sacrifices, grace would not have been sufficient for them. They likely would have heard that Christians believed in three gods, not one. They heard about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they say, well, that's polytheism. We are strictly monotheistic. That, obviously, they would have concluded is heretical, and they would have heard, likely, that the law had been fulfilled by Christ and probably would have objected to that. Culturally, the rumors about Christianity at the time were rampant also likely of coming to their Jewish years. There were claims that, Jew, that Christians were atheists because they did not participate in the temple or idol worships of the time. They would have heard that they were cannibals because they ate the flesh and drank the blood of a dead man. Disgusting. Uh, they would have heard that they were incestuous because they had these quote-unquote love feasts among brothers and sisters. Some of these things were true. Most were False in the eye of the Jew in Rome, all negative. All negative. In fact, they probably thought that Christians were some of the more evil people on the face of the earth. Um, So they said, "We, we need someone with authority to speak to us. And they say, that's you, Paul. You tell us. Clarify. Bring some truth to our understanding about this sect called Christianity. My beloved, how, how could they reject Christ if they didn't know about the true Christ? How could they reject Christianity as a worldview or as a religion if they didn't know the truth about Christianity? In the post-Christian Western world, we're in a very, very similar situation. We have lots of untruths when it comes to what people think about our faith. In fact, I would argue that many of your family and friends and coworkers, when you tell them you're a Christian, they go, ooh. Maybe they don't do that. They're going to be kind But in their mind, they're thinking, hmm, oh, I know what that means. But they really don't know what it means because it's highly probable that their understanding of Christianity is not what the Bible teaches nor what you believe. So when when scholars come along in the United States and say that we're living in a post-Christian culture or some now are saying a post-post-Christian culture, they're not simply saying that we live in a culture that now rejects the orthodox teachings of Christianity, they're identifying a culture that does not know what the basic truths of the Christian faith are or the gospel to reject it. So post-post-Christianity is an ignorant culture when it comes to what we believe about God and salvation. You say, well, how bad is it? 64% of Americans believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, all religions. Two-thirds of Americans believe that everyone sins a little bit, but continue to insist that man by nature is good, that man by nature is good, and two-thirds believe that eventually everyone, everyone gets to heaven. You wonder why your family and friends are not pressed when you share the gospel with them, why there isn't a sense of urgency. They believe, two-thirds believe, they're going to go anyway. So they don't need to talk to you, they don't need to hear about Christ, and they don't need to hear about a cross. 74% of Americans said the smallest sins do not warrant eternal damnation. And I think this is probably most troubling. In 2020, George Barna from Professing Christians, 52% of professing Christians in the United States believe that a person can attain eternal salvation by being good or doing something good. Not salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That's over half. So it's not just outside the church that we have doctrinal issues. It's very much inside the church, and it's not just in the larger church, it's in the evangelical church. It's in evangelical circles where we believe, an evangelical believes that the Word of God is the Word of God. Just recently, 70% this is extraordinary I don't even know what to do with this my beloved but we better get a handle on this because this is the culture in which we are out walking that difficult road to share Christ. 70% of professing evangelicals said that Jesus Christ was the first being God created not God. If Jesus Christ is not God there is no Christianity. There is no faith and there is no salvation. And yet 70%, this was just recent, 70% of professing evangelicals here say he's not God. 56% of evangelicals think the Holy Spirit's a divine force, but not a person, just a divine force, a power that we have. And nearly half of all evangelicals agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. Almost half of professing evangelicals say all religions and two-thirds, that was the equivalent of the general population, said heaven is a place where all people will ultimately be reunited with their loved ones. It's universalism. That's two-thirds, my beloved. Now, that's not just outside the church. That's not in the, in the larger church. That's in evangelical circles, just like our church. It would be, I believe, a gross misunderstanding to say that Americans inside and outside the church are ignorant to what we believe to be true. A gross misunderstanding. And if you live here in the Bay Area, if if you have been walking the road of the gospel in the Bay Area, in the most unchurched, de-churched place in the country, then you must know that our mission field is even more ignorant. And I don't say that in a demeaning sense. If you live here and you proclaim Christ here, the basic teachings of our faith, the understanding of the gospel, do not exist So do not assume that they know. We are a post, 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 post Christian culture here in the Bay Area. And now this is more than a sad commentary on the spiritual condition of both our church and our cultural moment. For the true Christian, you should hear this and it should be a call to action. You should hear this and not say, oh, that's so sad or that's so hard to hear. You say, okay, then what do I need to do about it? What is my response to it? Like Paul standing before the Jews in Rome, you are to be that voice of authority. You are to be. People aren't just gonna come to church. Have you noticed that? People don't just, not here, in the South they still do. It's still part of their culture. People don't just come to church. So they're not gonna come in. We must go out. We must be the authorities of the gospel that those who've never heard can hear, called by God to provide clarity where there is So much confusion. I'm talking real biblical clarity on the basic truths of our faith. You don't need to have a PhD in systematic theology. This is your calling as a Christian. The very basics, and based upon the stats I just read, we need basics, don't we? We don't need to talk about the hypostatic union of Christ being fully God and fully human, truly God, truly human at the same time. Basics like this, like there's one God, not three, and that one God is the creator, We need to teach that. Basics like Jesus Christ is God, eternally begotten, not made one in being with the Father. Basics like the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the holy triune God, not a force, not some mystical power, some eastern, but a real person in the Godhead. Simple truth that man is not by nature good, Even though we occasionally do bad things, simple truth that man is by nature evil, sinful through and through, bent in on himself. The culture needs to know that. The church needs to know that. Simple truth that salvation, being forgiven of our sins and granted eternal life instead of judgment by God only comes as a gift of grace. Can only be received by faith. Not your good works, Not religious practice, not a family name, not success in the world, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus the God-man who took your punishment that you might be saved. The truth of the Bible is not some nice moral guide to life, but truly the infallible, inerrant word of God. God's words. The truth that eternity is not heaven for everyone That's a lie. It's heaven for all those who have turned away from their sins and put their hope in Jesus Christ to save them. It's heaven for them. But it's eternal damnation. It's hell for all those who refuse to be saved and remain dead in their sins. We're talking Christianity 101 here. Basic truths, our culture, and apparently many in the church need desperately to learn from whom? From you. From you from those commissioned by God to teach. My beloved, this requires two basic things that are obvious and I'll close. Number one, in order to bring clarity to the lost here in the Bay Area in your mission field, you must have clarity yourself, right? I mean, how can you bring clarity to those who are confused if you are not clear on the basic doctrines of our faith? How is that possible for you? Imagine, look at verse 22 again. Imagine if the Jews said to Paul, verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are. And imagine if the Apostle Paul, he doesn't say this, next week we're gonna get his response and it's glorious, but imagine he says this, sorry friends, I have no good answer. I should, but I don't. I haven't paid much attention when I've been in church and I rarely if ever read my Bible or attend Bible studies or, or seek discipleship. I spend most of my time working extra hours or playing video games or establishing my online profile. Imagine if Paul said that. What if he said what, what I know may or may not be true? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I know your eternal soul hang hanging the balance, but I can't help you. I don't know. My beloved, that would be a tragic response. I would say a hateful response to God for a gospel messenger. And yet, based on the very simple polling data, of the evangelical church today, that would be the response required by most. By most evangelicals, they'd have to say, I don't know. Or what they do know, as Mark Twain used to say, just ain't so. What they would tell them about God would be wrong. That there are three gods. That the Holy Spirit's not a person. That man is by nature good and we don't need grace to be saved. Secondly, so you gotta know, you gotta gotta know in order to bring clarity. Secondly, we learn I think, the necessity of being intentional and going out, of not sitting here expecting people to come in or sitting in our homes or our workplaces expecting people to come to us and ask a question like the Jews asked. Tell us about Christ. Tell us about the gospel. We are to intentionally go out and seek and engage the lost. Verse 17, after three days Paul was there, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So Paul wastes no time. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna begin the work of a gospel messenger here in Rome. And he starts with the Jews, his own people. Kirk's gonna talk about this next week, but look at verse 23. What did he do? lot latter part of verse 23. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus. So he called the Jews, and from morning to evening, He begins to work with them, explaining to them from their scriptures the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God that had come. So who in your immediate circle, my beloved, and I want you to think about this, bring faces and names to mind right now. Who in your circle, your family or friends, maybe a coworker, maybe a next door neighbor who you've known for years, who in your mission field is ignorant when it comes to the kingdom of God or Jesus Christ? If you were to say the kingdom of God, they say, I have no idea what that means. Or you would talk to them about Jesus Christ, they would say, I don't know who that is. My beloved, living in this area, the probability that they have never heard the true gospel, or what they've heard about Christianity and the gospel, are false is exceedingly high. Exceedingly high here. If we see so much confusion within the church, what's it like outside the church? certainly much more. And if those of us who have a firm grasp on the basic truths remain silent, who will teach the confused of our time? Who will bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the clarity of the Christian faith to the confused of our time? If not the church who's in the know, then who will do it? who will travel this very hard road, Then it is hard to bring clarity to the lost in this mission field here in the Bay Area. This is your calling. This is our collective calling as a church, and I want you to be encouraged. I don't want you to leave with this weight on you. Be encouraged because you're not called to do it alone. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have access to teaching today that we've never had in the history of the church, and you have one another. You have one another to do this great gospel work. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are with you. They're with you. My beloved, I want to encourage you to take your road to Rome. Be a faithful minister of the gospel by doing the work that God has called and equipped you to do. Grow, strive to grow in your understanding of our faith. And then communicate it to others. Communicated to those who are confused out of the deep, deep love that God has for you in Christ. Listen, have a greater love for the lost than a fear of that road that takes you to them. Out of the deep love that God has for you in Christ, have a greater love for the lost in your mission field than the fear of that road that gets to them that we must take as messengers of the gospel. Listen to what Spurgeon said. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. My beloved, if we don't go and make the gospel clear, who will? And if we don't go, how will they know how to be saved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that uh, bearing our cross, traveling the road to Rome that you've called us to To make is is hard. It's certainly hard in this area. It's been hard for two thousand years. The difficulty of the road is no excuse for our not walking it. You have encouraged us, encouraged us with your word, with the spirit, and with one another to engage in the ministry here in the Bay Area. I pray, Father, that you would make us bold as messengers of the gospel. I pray that you would bless us with a deep hunger to truly know what it means to be a Christian, to not falter on the basic doctrines of our faith, to spend the necessary time in the Word, in Bible studies, in in church like this, learning and growing, not only for our own sanctification, Lord, that we might be holy as you are holy, but that we might take these great truths to those outside who are confused and perishing. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us as a church to do this together, that we would not foolishly strive to walk the road you've given us alone, but that we would faithfully pray for one another and come alongside one another and bear one another up that we might fulfill the work that you've called us to. Lord, we know that the days are evil and the time is short And there's so much work to do. Lord, give us great encouragement in that. Give us great joy in that. Prevent us from being slothful Christians in this Western world. But set our feet upon that road, Lord, and bring us out. Put us into contact with the confused and lost. And then if you would be pleased, Lord, save many through us. Bring a revival here in Cambrian Park. Fill this church and all like-minded churches with those you've ordained to save before the foundations of the world. Do this work, I pray, Lord, not only for our encouragement, but for your glory. Cause us to reflect deeply upon these things, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.